And I'll never forget, he said to me, God is a person. That just ran through my head over and over. It was real to me for the first time in my life. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Charu Das, founder of the Krishna Temples in Spanish Fork, Utah, in Salt Lake City, Utah. We'll talk just a bit about those in a minute, but we were talking just a moment ago about the meaning of your names. Will you explain those? Sanskrit, and Charu means beautiful, Das means servant. Charu Das means servant of the most beautiful. So every time you hear hear that name, you get a reminder. My birth name, interestingly enough, was Chris, and that's certainly a spiritual name, too. Mm. But we consider your real spiritual life begins when you meet a realized soul known as a guru in our culture, a spiritual mentor who's further along than you are. And to make a serious commitment to a guru means to get initiated. And during the initiation ceremony, among other things, the guru renames you. Chris is certainly, as I said, a spiritual name. But Charudas has the extra weight of having come from my spiritual father. Mm. I wonder if you would talk just a little bit, just to set the stage. Hinduism, there is no one giant unified Hindu organization, but there are different schools or different ways of worship, as I understand it. Where does the, the Krishna movement or Krishna consciousness fit into Hinduism? Hinduism is a word that was... Uh, coined by the Muslim invaders around 1100 A.D., Muhammad of Gore, Muhammad of Ghazni. They referred, referred to the people who lived in the fertile plains of the Indus River Valley as Hindus, and certainly their intentions were not benign. Another name that they affixed to the area was Hindu Kush. Kush means a mountain of bodies in this case, and they hmm. were good to their word. In order to subjugate the area, they certainly slaughtered a lot of people. And it's ironic to me how people from the area adopt the term with pride. You know, <laughs> we're Hindus. I said, well. And in fact, the name conveys no theological information. If you tell me you're Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, you're a Lutheran, you're a Methodist, even that you're a Christian or a Muslim, there's information that, that's transmitted in that terminology. But Hinduism Maybe a hundred years ago, a Hindu would have believed in reincarnation, a Hindu would have been a theist, a Hindu would have been a vegetarian. But nowadays, you have meat-eaters and you have vegetarians, you have atheists and you have theists, you have polytheists and you have monotheists. It's everything and nothing. If you were to ask me what the religion of America was, and I were to reply to you, Yankeeism, how much the wiser would we <laughs> be for that? Not much, except yeah. a little tune would be yeah. running through so my you, head. You can talk about Hinduism till the cows come home and not learn a single thing, mm. because it's everything and it's nothing. But if you mean within Hinduism, again, whatever's going on in India, there's some very good things. There's some very strict practices, some very rigid doctrinal communities um, based on higher principles and the control of the flesh and the mind and the emotions. We happen to number among the majority. Most of the people in India worship Vishnu. They're called Vaishnavas. And if you're a Vaishnava, you don't orient yourself or define yourself by anything as nebulous as Hinduism. Your text is the Bhagavad Gita, the Puranas, the Upanishads, and the Vedas. Our 
principles are, of course, we're vegetarian. We don't eat meat. We don't take intoxicants, including coffee, tea, cigarettes. We don't engage in gambling, and we don't participate in illicit sex. That means if you're married, you're faithful. If you're single, you're celibate. The groups that practice, according to Scripture, they stand for something, whereas the average Hindu I haven't found stands for anything particular. A person who defines himself as a Hindu, I found that person doesn't really stand for anything. But if you call yourself a Shaivite or if you call yourself a Vaishnava, then I, I actually know what you believe in. I know some of your doctrine and I know your lifestyle principles that you live by. So how do we fit within Hinduism? I mean, we're, we're certainly one of the groups, cults, if you like to call it in a, in a positive sense, in India. And uh, our reference point is the Bhagavad Gita. The Bhagavad Gita is the perennial philosophy. There's no mention of Hinduism or any other ism there. There are only three main components in the Bhagavad Gita. There are the living entities called Atmas, which are you and I. There is the Paramatma, the supreme soul, which is God. And then there is the verb, which connects those two nouns, which is called bhakti, or seva, or service. When you have the whole and the parts, you have the Lord and the servants, uh, you have that which is integrated and you have the fragments, the thing that connects them is service. We are constitutionally servants of God. And so that's our religion, serve God. And the way you get your foot in the door is through the process of chanting. You have five senses, touch, taste, smell, hearing, um, seeing. When you pick up a set of beads, as is common practice in Catholicism, Muslimism, Judaism, Sufism, maybe different names of God, but the practice is pretty much universal, and you chant Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, Hare Hare, according to a, a previously made vow, you will chant a certain number of names of God a day, and you count those names on your beads. You're engaging all five senses. Your tactile senses engage in fingering the beads, your tongue, which of all the senses the most voracious and difficult to control, is uttering the divine purificatory names of God. Your ears are hearing. You try to keep a picture nearby so your eyes are looking at the form of the Lord and then you're smelling incense and flowers. So by that simple expediency of chanting, you engage all of your senses in the service of the Lord and you, in a very positive way, subdue the senses. You're not trying to repress them as silent meditation and other more severe forms of meditational practices do, but you're engaging them. You're engaging them in a pleasurable way. So the mind may wander during the course of this uh, session, but because your senses are engaged, it's going to bring it back. And the mind's going to wander again, but then you're going to bring it back. And what happens through audibly saying the names of the Lord and engaging the senses, eventually the mind ceases to wander. It wanders less and less and less, and then finally it ceases to wander. And that's called samadhi. That's called perfect focus, 24-7 focus on the Heavenly Father, the Absolute, the Lord of Lords, God of Gods. The example in the Gita itself is of a lamp which is in a windless place. If there's any wind, it'll flicker. But when there's no wind, it burns steadily. And so that mind which has controlled itself and absorbed itself in the sound vibration of the Lord's holy name is compared to a lamp in a windless place. 
that's quite a still, peaceful image. If you, I can certainly picture the candle that I've seen in that state. Talk to me, if you would, before commitment to and finding a spiritual leader or guru, about your path from when you were young and when you became aware of spiritual things and, and your searching. Or were you searching? My parents were quite religious on both sides, my mother and father, probably more so my father. We started out going to the little Presbyterian church near our rural community in Pennsylvania. And then we uh, transferred to the Episcopalian church, kind of a higher hobnobbing with kind of more opulent, affluent type of people. The Mellons and the Rockefellers and all those people went to our church in Ligonier Valley. And then I went to Lawrenceville in New Jersey prep school. We were required to go to a small, short chapel service on our way to classes every day. Then the Sunday services, we hosted Harvey Price from Harvard and Yale and all the Ivy League chaplains You know, came through, made the circuit. And then I went to University of Virginia, and then we also wore coats and ties and were required to go to services at that time. I had a lot of exposure, and I'm sure that you know, many of the essential truths I now practice more seriously were delivered to me. Mm. But one thing I do remember is that the Episcopalian priest who served our congregation for many years ended up going to rehab for alcoholism, and he also smoked cigarettes. And in retrospect, I, I think that probably the potency of his message and the purity of his practice was considerably diluted by those ungodly habits. So maybe I heard the words, but they didn't penetrate my heart. Then I went to India in 1969. I was away from the country for eight years. I left because of the Vietnam War, civil rights issues. The country was in turmoil. Mm. Yes. Actually, the situation now reminds me a lot of the way it was in those days. And I just thought I would absent myself. That would be the best thing I could do. Was this like conscientious objector status or this is just leaving, as you say? Well, I left. But before I left, I burned my draft card. Uh I had two of them. I burned one at the Pentagon before getting arrested. (laughs) And the other one I sent to the head of the Selective Service System, General Hershey. So I was on their radar. Okay. <laughs> no question about that. <laughs> I was away for eight years, and for the first three of those years until amnesty was declared, my parents would write me in Israel or France or Spain, wherever I happened to be at the time, and they'd say, those nice FBI men stopped by again, and they were asking about <laughs> your well-being. <laughs> your well-being. <laughs> uh in any case, I was able to, at that time to go overland to India, which was quite an exciting adventure. You know, in those days, they didn't have the information technology, they didn't have the, the information gathering systems that you have. You just go to the places where people went and you tried to meet someone and pick up on a, a clue. But it didn't happen for me, my first trip to India. And I was getting low on money, and so I went through Southeast Asia and uh, Bali. I spent a month in Bali, and then I arrived in Australia just to earn money. thought if I could work for six months in Australia, I'd have enough money to go back to India or go to Mauritius or someplace really interesting. Well, I was surprised when being spewed out of the subway one winter evening, coming back from a job in a construction site in North Sydney, I saw a 
flash of color out of the corner of my eye and looked, and there was a Westerner dressed with what we call a dhoti, a robe, korta, the long upper garment. He had a shaved head, a little ponytail, and a mark of clay in the shape of a V on his forehead, and he had a magazine in his hand. Well, I'd been to India, and of course, I hadn't expected to encounter anyone like this in Australia of all places, maybe India, but not Australia. And he'd come a month before as a missionary from San Francisco, sent by our guru, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. And they had happened to have rented a small temple just within easy walking distance of where my wife and I were staying. So I thought, here's a, I can have my cake and eat it too. I can, have, I can earn money and I can learn something. Yeah. I took advantage of it. I had Monday, Wednesday, and Friday classes. That first fellow I met was quite articulate. He was a good cook, a good musician, and a good speaker. And I'll never forget, during that encounter, as the twilight deepened and businessmen were passing us on the street in the financial district, and we were kind of crouched together, squished together near the pillars of this huge building, he said to me, God is a person. And I'm sure someone said that to me before, maybe many times. But after I spent a few minutes with him, and until I went back to the temple, that just ran through my head over and over. It was real to me. For the first time in my life, I thought, God is a person. Mm. God is a person. And that's good news because he, he, he loves you. He created you. He loves you. That you have a divine father. That's why it was meaningful to you because you made these connections. Yeah, yeah. And it also meant to me that I couldn't do whatever I wanted to do. If there's an absolute and he's a person, then he has guidelines for me. And not just to repress me or be a killjoy, but <laughs> but to get me where I really need to go. Uh-huh. I mean, everything that's created is created for a purpose. This microphone, these headphones, they're created for a purpose. And so if I was created by a person, by a loving father for a purpose, then I need to invite him in. I need no longer to be aloof or standoffish or indifferent. But I actually need to send him a message that, you know, I'd like to know why you created me and what you have in mind for me because I think it's going to be pretty exciting. Uh, certainly a lot more exciting than me bouncing around as a <laughs> superficial tourist, you know, mm -hmm. throughout all of Asia. And, of course, the way you express that to the Lord is by invoking his names. Another thing that missionary told me in downtown Sydney was, if you get yourself a set of beads and invest five minutes a day to chanting the names of God, I guarantee you that you'll be more God-conscious than you've ever been before. And if you're not, I won't never say a word about it to you again. Now we have tons of beads. We've got beads everywhere. We've got beads in the gift store, beads in my wrist. You know, everywhere you turn, there's beads. But in those days, there weren't any beads. He didn't even have any beads to give me. So I went to the local version of Fred Myers and got some beads, you know, woman's probably necklace. And I, I remember took a, the color? They were brown. Okay. Yeah, they were, they were sort of mahogany. I took him up on the challenge I, for what, seven days, and I didn't see him or visit the temple during those seven days, but I did spend five minutes a day chanting, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Ram, Hare Ram, Ram Ram, 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 And I had to admit, at the end of those seven days, 
in spite of all the church going I'd been to, in spite of all the sermons I'd heard, in spite of all the hymns that I'd sung, that simple investiture of 35 minutes over seven days, if I did my math correctly, boosted me to a level that nothing had ever done before. And then I couldn't be but dishonest to myself if I didn't pursue it further. Had you envisioned a future for yourself, or were you just sort of saying, I'll wait and see where this takes me? A, a future either of where you lived or a profession or religion prior or vocation? To prior yeah, to that. Yeah, prior to that. No, I was very much adrift, as, as were many young people in those days. We knew we wanted some changes, but we didn't know exactly what those changes were. And my experience with people like myself in India and hotels frequented by Westerners and ashrams was that there was a lot of posturing, a lot of posing, a lot of posturing. Is there a kind of spiritual tourism? Just curiosity, but you mentioned shallow, I think was a word you used before. Curiosity, but not deep enough to the point of commitment, more of sort of dipping a toe in the water. We all talk about the search. We're all on a search for meaning, for the divine. But some people become professional searchers. They, <laughs> they, you know, they come to the point where they don't really want to find out anything deeper or meaningful, but they find out that by bragging about where they've been and who they've associated with, they get the girls or whatever it is or the attention or the whatever it is that their lower self hankers for. They've achieved that through searching in exotic places and being with dropping names of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi or Swami Chidananda or Darjeeling. It just becomes posing, becomes all posturing, I think. At some point, you need to search to find a destination, to find a meaning, a purpose. So after this week, where did you go from there? It was interesting because... We were working, and we had originally set a goal of six months and a certain amount of funds, a few thousand dollars. And I wasn't going to abandon that for anything. I wanted that. And I certainly wasn't going around looking to join a group. I mean, I had curiosity. I recognized a certain level of existential despair within me. But uh, I didn't have any perception initially that this would be the answer, that this would fill the gap. Hmm. What I did was I would attend the talks a couple times a week in every Krishna temple worldwide. There are 800 of them now. has a Saturday, Sunday program where you come, there's some chanting, there's a talk, and there's a vegetarian feast afterwards. I never missed the feast because the food was really good. <laughs> and then I would come once or twice in the evening during the week because I liked the chanting, and then it, it was intellectually stimulating. But I maintained the attitude that if I hear a question that can't be answered, then I'm off the hook. You know, I'll attend, I'll learn as much as I can. But when someone asks a question that he has no answer for, that I feel he's bluffing on, then I'll, I'll be free to go and somewhere else and add to my learning in some other way. And that never happened. He answered the questions with so much con It wasn't everything that could be empirically proved, but there are certain truths, like, for instance, the existence of the soul. You can't prove that empirically. But we know that we're alive. Yeah, We know that we're alive. It's a self-evident truth that I'm a spiritual being. It's self-evident because I'm conscious. I'm conscious of myself. 
A material thing can never be conscious of itself. So the very fact that I have consciousness is in itself evidence and proof that I am not material. I'm a spiritual being. Like that. He couldn't offer me empirical proof of my spirituality, but he spoke of it with such conversancy and familiarity and confidence that what should have been obvious to me before became obvious. Mm. And here I am 50 years later, and I, honestly, I still haven't heard anybody ask a question that couldn't be answered. Of course, in going to college and high school classes, I've been asked questions that I didn't have the best answer for. But when I would mull it over and maybe even reference some of my peers and look at the book, the next time you ask me that same question, I'm ready for you. I'm ready for you with the very, very best answer. And I would still say that if there came a point when Krishna consciousness, Bhagavad Gita stopped short and there was something else that offered more, then I would, to be honest, I would have to go to that. But in 50 years, that hasn't happened. So what took you from there to actually being, I don't think the word is clergy, that's the closest I can Devotee. A devotee. We finished our term. We had our money, my wife and I. We quit our jobs, but we thought it would be fun to stay in the temple for 10 days. Our intention was to hitchhike to Perth and then go get a boat to Mauritius. But we asked the temple authorities, can we stay in the temple for 10 days before we leave? They said, fine. Part of staying in the temple is, of course, being a vegetarian, so we were fully vegetarian. We did smoke a little bit. We gave up our smoking during those 10 days. Uh, We went out with the devotees chanting and distributing literature because that's what they did, and we helped out in the kitchen. We did did everything. Mm. Figured I'm going to do it, and we might as well do it 100%. Then goodbye, thank you so much for everything, and we stuck out our thumbs. And A couple days later, we find ourselves outside of Adelaide. We'd walked into this restaurant. There was a gum-chewing 50-year-old waitress there who we asked, do you have any vegetarian options on the menu? After she stopped laughing, about 10 minutes later, (laughs) she said the best she could do was give us the lamb and the mint jelly and mashed potatoes. And I I said, can you give us the extra mashed potatoes and mint jelly and leave off the lamb? And she said, no. So, So my wife and I are sitting facing each other and we're sliding off our dead flesh. And we just looked at each other and had the same thought. Let's go back. Hmm. You know, we'd been to all kinds of exotic places, both of us. She wasn't with me the whole time. But both of us had all kinds of adventures in all, you know, Bali, Israel, Canary Islands, Penang, Singapore. But we hadn't realized it, but the practice of spirituality had become more attractive to us. The inner journey had become more appealing than just going on. Newer places, newer beaches, newer palm trees, newer horizons, newer groups of posing braggarts. So can that be uh, summed up as more of an internal journey you were ready for than Now we were external. ready. Now I was ready to do that. And that seemed more exciting to me. However, I had been traveling quite a lot for a number of years. And uh, it did occur to me that I would probably have to give up my traveling. Because at that time, the temple was just a rented house in Bondi. The lifestyle was somewhat monastic, routine. didn't seem to me that being a devotee involved much traveling. And I thought, okay, in order to learn what needs to be learned and discover what needs to be discovered, I will give up traveling for the foreseeable future. So part of going back was to shed this idea that I would be anywhere else but in this little suburban house in Bondi for months or maybe even years or maybe even decades. 
This is in Australia. In Australia. Ironic thing was, just a few weeks after we moved back, my two mentors, the two that had originally established the mission, one went to Hong Kong and one went to Fiji. So I'm driving to the airport, and I asked them, who's going to be in charge now you guys are going? They said, well, we thought you would be. <laughs> this they say on the way out, on the way to the airport. <laughs> I mean, I probably had six months of visiting once or twice a week and maybe a total of three weeks of living in the temple at that point. Probably still had nicotine stains on my index finger, and I'm in charge of the whole continent. You know, Well, that made me the temple president, and one of the prerogatives of the temple president is go to India every year. We have a big convention in March in Bengal, and then we fly to Uttar Pradesh. And so within a few months of joining the temple, I'm representing Australia at the World Conference in Mayapur, West Bengal. And I went every year for 10 years, and some years I was obliged to go twice a year. Didn't have to give up my traveling, <laughs> but it limited itself to travels to India. I have two questions for you. One is about what that inner journey was from that point over the next, those 10 years while you were traveling and, and I assume learning all the time, learning more, but also what were the daily activities that helped an inner journey? Systematic planning and cultivation of good seeds. I'd come to learn that all of us are agriculturalists in one sense or another. And every book that you read, every movie that you see, every word that you speak, every relationship that you cultivate, it's like planting a seed. It's going to have a good result or it's going to have a bad result. Some of the ways you can plant good seeds are chant God's holy name systematically, which we do every morning. Give up eating flesh of animals that have been tortured and killed unspeakably. And then part of our culture is not just to give up violence on the plate, but to offer fruits, flour, grains, leaf, water, milk products to the Lord. We all eat three times a day. We spiritualize the process of eating by recognizing that God creates all these edibles, sun, moon, stars, rain, DNA, RNA, earth, nutrients, that's all created by God. We can't recreate these things in the laboratory. And so we calculate that God owns it. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, offer me. He doesn't just say, say grace. When we say grace, we say, thank you, Lord, for giving it to me. When we offer it, we say, it's yours. It's not mine. It's yours. You created it. You have the first right of enjoyment. And so when we cook, we don't taste the food when we cook. We try to keep clean. And we cook as a meditation. For the Festival of Colors, we cook huge amounts of food for all the people that come to the temple. But for offering, we just take a small portion out of each pot, put it on a special silver plate, and put it on the altar, bow down, say a few Sanskrit prayers to the effect that, Lord, this is yours. You created it. You have the first right. I'm offering it to you. Please enjoy it. God doesn't have to eat food, obviously. He's self-sufficient, complete, he's totally spiritual. But he says in the Bhagavad Gita that he enjoys not masticating per se, but he enjoys the love, the devotion, the respect, and the honor with which we offer to him. So he, he tastes that. His body being spiritual, any one of the senses can perform the full-fledged functions of any other sense. Because we have material, but we can only eat with our mouth, smell with our nose, see with our eyes. But the Lord, just by hearing your prayers of offering, he can taste that food just by hearing. By seeing you bow down, he, he can enjoy, he can relish that offering. You're making a, a real connection between devotee, the offering, and God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very personal thing. 
And every time you, instead of just eating it yourself, if you eat the food, then that's a seed, okay? If that food was acquired through violence and bloodletting, that's a bad seed. That's a bad seed. Someone says, well, I didn't kill the animal, but you paid someone. You paid someone. So in a court of law, if you paid someone to kill someone else, you're just as culpable. So that's a bad seed. But if I eat even vegetarian food and I eat it for my own personal enjoyment without offering to the Lord, that's also not necessarily a good seed because there might have been some small measure, a fraction, one ten thousandth the amount of violence in eating a baby carrot or sprout than by letting blood, the blood of a highly evolved vertebrate with a fully developed nervous system, there might be only a small fraction of the pain that I'm causing by eating on the plant level. But I'm still accountable. I'm still the responsible person. So in a sense, I've also planted not a big bad seed, but a little bad seed (laughs) by eating for my own personal sense enjoyment. And so the antidote to all that is to offer it first to the Lord. That's not only not doing a negative karmic action, but it's doing a positively devotional and transcendental and spiritual action. That's another way, plant seeds. Coming here and sharing our message for whatever it's worth is a seed I'm planting. And so what caused me to step over from my previous life to the new life was the opportunity to systematically, almost every single moment of every day, depending upon my own volition, it was within my power to transform my whole future and the future of those with whom I come in contact with. And I couldn't pass that up. Previously, I had no real knowledge, no real direction, no real compass, no real navigation, no real sextant. And I'm, I might have planted some good seeds, but it was totally coincidental, totally accidental. And because most of my activities were capricious, I would calculate that the vast majority of the seeds I had been planting would have produced in a week, a month, a year, or maybe even next lifetime, a negative, miserable result for me and anybody that would have been around me. <laughs> Are those the things that bring you joy from your relationship with God? Is that planting of good seeds, what are the things that bring you joy, or is joy what you're seeking? We had the Festival of Colors last weekend. 15,000 people came to our temple on Saturday, and 5,000 people came on Sunday. And many people come just to have a good time, throw colors, hug each other. It's a very loving atmosphere. We definitely stress love your neighbor as yourself. You know, Anybody who comes to the temple on that day gets a real powerful dose of loving the neighbor as yourself. People accept you unconditionally. They don't care who you are, where you come. You're just encouraged to love each other because you're all parts and parcels of God, one of a kind. And so that goes without saying. But our motive in organizing the festival itself is also and overridingly to promote the first commandment, to love God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. Now, if you were at that level, which who is? Maybe Lord Jesus, my guru. What would be the symptoms of someone who was, in fact, loving God with all their heart, all their soul, and their mind? They would be constantly glorifying him, saying his name, praising him, honoring him. You would be hard-pressed to find a moment when some praise or some honor were not on that person's lips. Well, when people come to the Festival of Colors for eight hours, every single band is chanting Sanskrit names of God. And people may not understand the full import of it, but just being swept up in the joy of it, they're singing and dancing. In other words, they're acting as as the greatest, elevated, purified saints that ever lived. And they don't have to have an intellectual understanding to get the benefit. 
Of course, if you do have an election and you can consistently apply that to your life every single day, you'll advance much more quickly. But absolute is absolute. So when you chant the name of God who is absolute, you get an absolute benefit. You get absolute purification. So during the festival anyway, someone came up and said, sure, are you having fun? And I thought about that. And I don't know if fun would be the <laughs> word to describe what I was feeling. What I'm feeling Having put all that together, when one or two are gathered together in my name, I am there. Is God there when 25,000 people are chanting his names? I think so. And I did that. I put that together. And so what I'm feeling is not fun, but it's deep. It's meaningful. It's joyful. It's like you can't believe the feeling. And I may not be grinning from in the ear or you know, I may actually be dealing with a crisis or putting out a fire or something. But there's a feeling there that's just incomparable, mm. you know, and my, my journey has led me to that. And I'm so thankful that God has allowed me to be an instrument, bridge from him to so many people. Charudas, thank you for speaking today in good faith. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners discuss the ideas presented by our guest, Charudas. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. Do you ever wish you could still your mind like a lantern in a windless place? What does the word God mean to you? And has there been a discernible moment in your life when spiritual practice became more important to you than anything else? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. And Yuri is a mother of an awesome son, teacher of child development, and an avid reader. Solomon Reynolds is a recent college graduate and is wondering how to get a job. Peggy Woodruff is a classical music DJ, mother of six, grandmother of eight, and the only wife of a great guy. Lanny Britch is a retired BYU professor of Asian religions and Asian history. He and his wife have a combined 11 children, 32 grandchildren, and 10 great-great-grandchildren. I loved how at the beginning Charu Das mentioned what his name meant and beautiful servant, and he talked about how our name is a reminder of who we serve. And I remember on my wedding day, uh, my grandfather, who was my best friend, and he said, you're giving away my name, meaning I was going to drop my maiden name, <laughs> right? That hit me pretty hard. And he said, what have you done with my name? What will you do with my name? And so I ended up keeping my maiden name as my middle and dropping my middle name. And, and that has been a reminder to me as I have gone on in my life and 20 years since of what will my name be known as and as a person of faith, as a person of character, as a person of integrity. And that's a tradition that I passed on to my child. He has the same initials as my grandfather and intentionally. And so I said, you match, granddad. And so what are you going to do with his name and the name of our Savior as we've carried on that tradition of faith? So that struck some. That was a, a pretty potent comment for me. My comment's brief on that, but I, I think it's very interesting how much names mean to all of us. Mm -hmm. When we uh, participate in sacrament, we're taking on the name of the Savior. Uh, when we participate in ordinances in other sacred places, we take on new names that are very significant to us. So I, I found his comments very fascinating and important there. Mm -hmm. 
And that name that he talked about, Charu Das, I took it both ways. First, when he said Charu is beautiful and Das is a servant, I thought, oh, he's named himself Beautiful Servant. But he had a totally different focus. He said that he was the servant of the most beautiful, meaning deity. Yeah. Th- that can be taken, taken both ways. I was thinking how Charu Das meant he met a spiritual leader, his guru, who gave him a new name. And I was thinking in my own sphere of influence, what spiritual leaders have given me a name? I'm a, an only child of a single mother. And I was, I was struck very personally about how my mother gave me a name and how every morning in middle school and high school, she would wake me up at 5 or 6 a.m. before she went to work and, and devote to me. She would give me a spiritual thought. Um, and at the time, it was very annoying. But I look back on it. <laughs> I look back on it with fondness, and I'm very grateful for my own sphere of influence, for people in my life that have acted as gurus. Sometimes, maybe just a comment at McDonald's mm-hmm. or a friend that I meet on on the way on the way to school every day. There are people in my life that aren't these gigantic, important figures, but they're very intimate, familiar people that give me insightful thoughts in my life. Could I change the direction a little bit? Sure. I was fascinated by his uh, explanation of the word Hindu. I've taught Hinduism, quote unquote, uh, for many years, but I honestly had never read an explanation of the word Hindu. Hinduism is known as the most all-inclusive religion in the world. As he he explained, there are atheists, there are total theists, uh, and everything in between. Agnostics, you name it. But the fact that he focused his form of Hinduism on God, on Krishna specifically, or on uh, Vishnu, who is, Krishna is an incarnation of Vishnu. So when he talked about Vaishnavites, it's speaking basically about the same thing. But I appreciated his focus on his particular kind of Hinduism, quote-unquote, found it very useful. And I think for anybody who is interested in Hinduism, it's worth always remembering what he said about it. I think it ties back into his description of what is in our name Mm -hmm. as he started broadly and then focused in on what his particular belief was. And, And as a Christian... That's our broad name, and then what does that look like for me? And it was a it was a journey to have him narrow down his version of belief, and as we all do, uh, as we all have to find our own definition of our faith. Because you're right, the word Christian takes in a world of differences. Right. Yes, we identified ourselves. We identify ourselves as Hindu or as Christian, but but narrowing it down to what that means as a disciple of whatever we are, as we have taken as our, as our faith system. I found his explanation regarding chanting, which uh, would be a form of bhakti yoga technically, was absolutely fascinating to me. And the fact that uh, his first teacher said, chant for five minutes a day, and it will change your life. And after 35 minutes of uh, chanting in that way, it did change his life. And as you can see what he's become, uh, it's, it's really quite remarkable. His analogy or metaphor of the, he called it a lantern, I'm, I think of a candle just standing in a room that's totally still. 
and the stillness of that flame if there is no outside impact or influence by any other substance or whatever was also a wonderful way to think of trying to find peace in your heart. And uh, I think all of us are, are working in that direction, trying to find that solemn, helpful, lovely, kind, spiritual inner sanctum, so to speak. The word that I latched onto from his narrative was focus. And I think it's because that applies to me greatly. As I've done devotional things, as I've been in church, as I have done my devotions at home, I sometimes have a difficulty with focus. Yes, you're concentrating on something, and suddenly your mind goes off to breakfast or to, you know, what you're going to be doing this afternoon. And and I'm in church, and I'm listening, and suddenly I'm thinking about the television show that I saw last week. And I have found a difficulty in my life keeping focus on things spiritual, on principles, on, on anything devotional. And I think that is what I latched onto when he was talking about the beads simply being a way to focus on deity, to be more God-centered, to have your mind more firmly on spiritual things. Do you ever have a hard time focusing? Every Sunday. <laughs> and it because I don't I don't hear oftentimes. I have to take notes for it to sink in for me. And so when I heard him talking about a ritual and getting the foot in the door, I thought my rituals are usually a foot out the door. And I loved that notion of engaging all of his senses and stilling his mind. And I thought, well, how can I do that in my rituals so that my scripture study, my prayers aren't just getting me and heading in the wrong direction, but I'm jumping through the hoop so I can say I did it, but that they're more meaningful I loved how he was born of Presbyterian parents, uh, traditionally Christian, I suppose, in a, in a very traditional paradigm, and he hated it. He acted out and, and left the country and went on his own spiritual journey. And for me, I feel like spirituality is only as as poignant as, as it's interesting to the individual. He latched on to things that were personally poignant to him, mm-hmm. and I feel like no matter what the dogma is in your certain religion or no matter what the doctrine is that people are trying to teach you, it, it, none of it's going to make sense unless you find personal relevance to yourself and your own life. And I guess that's what I'm trying to do as I'm living in my 20s trying to ossify my own beliefs. I'm trying to find out personal truths that, that are true to me and not true to anyone else because why does it matter to me if it's not true to me? That made me think of what he had said that someone told him God is a person, and suddenly it clicked. And he said, I'd heard that a hundred times, but suddenly it clicked. That's what you're talking about, the personal connections that where suddenly it makes sense to you. That's happened to me a hundred times in my life where I know I've heard that before. I know I've read that 52 times. (laughs) Why does it suddenly drive itself deep into my heart and it makes sense. And what I loved what he said was after he found out those truths, he had to be honest to those truths and live by them. So once he found them out, he, he realized, I need to be a devotee. I need, I need to follow this religion because now they make sense to me. And I wouldn't be honest to myself if I didn't follow this creed. This brought to mind the great British parliamentarian, actually, who was responsible for the Brits doing away with slavery. His name was William Wilberforce. 
his biographer makes a most beautiful statement about how his life was changed in exactly the same way. When he found God, he realized that his life was not his own. And when that happened, everything changed. And as a result, England and even our uh, society here in the United States is not the same because William Wilberforce found God and and God changed his life. And I think that was a theme we heard him speak to Mm. as well. I love that devotee name Mm -hmm. because it just visualizes what we all should be once we find that eternal truth for us. And that notion of conversion, and it's the right person at the right time, and the right all of the previous pieces led him to hearing that devotee con- say that God is a person and have it make sense, and all the previous journeys that he had to go on, or we have to go on in our own journey to become a devotee. So I, I love that notion that that we are a part of a bigger part. Perhaps generationally, as a millennial, I am very self-centered and I have these these gigantic, oh, what's the word? I have these gigantic self-inflations of importance. I have these delusions of grandeur. And I feel like things only make sense or things are only valuable to me if they're done with fireworks and in spectacular ways. I can only get truth if I meet a guru. And for me, I loved this inner journey talking about you find a lot of truth within yourself. It doesn't matter the outside or the the shell of how it looks to other people or or things that you need to go or places, people you need to meet. But it's all about doing what you can with with where you are in your own circumstances. Solomon, maybe being, finding that authenticity, being authentic, does that make any sense at all? I think about his journey, you know, 60s and 70s. You don't remember the 60s and 70s. You probably don't either. You and I do. (laughs) I remember the 60s and the 70s that go and live your life and do what you want. And, And he started that journey as that outer, you know, let's go do whatever we want. And let's visit all the countries in the world and find out what what life is all about. And how marvelous that it came down to, I've got to find out who the authentic me is. I've got to make this an inner journey, not an outer journey. I've got to stop being a poser and say, I've done this and this and this, and I've got to be a devotee. I found that very interesting. So did I. I was very interested in his comments about posturing and posing. I I think as we get older, and I'm older, we often look back upon our own lives and ask, have I really been authentic? Have I been real? Is my contribution to the world, to the church, to the nation, to my family, have I really been authentic to what God wanted me to do? Uh, Have I really become what I was supposed to become? And I think he's very impressive. Uh, It's very impressive that he he, uh, recognized that uh, most of us, I think, are really trying to look like we are something rather than really being something. I wrote down authentic as well, and I'm connecting with that notion of where, what guidelines does God have for me in my life? And am I that inner search? Am I doing what he wants me to do? When family or friends question, you know, why do I live so far from family? Well, because God has told me this is where I need to be. This is where I need to serve. 
for those who don't have that same faith, it's puzzling because the decisions aren't made in the same way. But when when you invite him in, as he talked about, and ask him, what does he have in mind for me? The answers change. And sometimes that's hard to follow that, that answer. Um, but you have to have faith that that's where we're supposed to be. What were some of the rest of your thinking when he was talking about self-evident truth, that the soul exists? How did that strike you? I was thinking that for a person who does not accept that, it would sound like just... Spiritual gobbledygook. Um, yeah, like that's all very well for you, but you've made that up in your head. That makes no sense to me. This is counter-scientific. Yeah. yeah. And yet, for, for me, yeah, that's all evidence that I exist makes perfect sense. It made perfect because, sense to me too. Because I have the sense that, yes, I have a soul and I am eternal and I have a connection with a God who loves me. But I have friends who, for them, it is gobbledygook. For most Hindus, and I'm talking about the whole range, except perhaps the agnostic or atheist Hindus, they really do believe that they have a personal soul. And they, as he expressed, uh, they know that there's something that goes on. In fact, as it goes on into another life in, in most uh, theology in, uh, in India. Perhaps millions of lives, all being a quest to become one with, with God ultimately. And I think you see that with death. You know, if you're um, with someone who is passing or has passed, you can see the physical change. And to me, it's a testament. It's self-evident that we have a spirit. But again, some have discounted that too. And so it goes back to that inner journey of what do I believe and what do I feel and how I know that feeling. I trust that feeling because of multiple experiences to, to confirm that, that I am a spiritual being. I found it interesting that he spoke about seeds, planting good seeds and bad seeds. And isn't the, the topic of seeds in multiple religions? That if it's a good seed, it will bring a, a good result, and if it's a bad seed, it will bring a bad result. I found his, his seed discussion very interesting. It ties back into what he was talking about with our names and what name will we give ourselves when we plant. Will we plant good seeds or we plant bad seeds? You know, you look at what you, your mom did in getting you up every morning and how, how hard that would be as a single mom and wanting to give you that opportunity and, and, and to teach that gospel principle to you and the seed that it planted, but it didn't bear fruit right away. And as a mom who, who is trying to teach a 12-year-old boy the gospel or about the Savior, it's, it's challenging when it's, oh, one more scripture. Are you serious? We have to read the scriptures again. But you hope that that seed will plant and bear fruit in some future time. And sometimes it sits in the ground for a long, long time before it starts to sprout. I know. <laughs> it did for me. It did for me. It's about faith, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Trusting that the seeds will pay off. I loved his phrase, offer it first to the Lord. I think when we bless the food in most of our tables, we kind of do that. But I, I think if we really were sincere and thought about it, we could approach a better feeling of something like he's, he's talking about. It's another ritual where we take it for granted of what we're doing. We just go through the motions. But, boy, he taught me to think differently about giving thanks to God in my 
even minor rituals of prayer, uh, like food. And, and it was a very powerful reminder, just the whole process of making food. And we see that in our family relations as we cook for you know holidays or parties. And, and I find that in, in gathering the family around, there is a, that feeling of community and love and, and, and righteousness together. But and I don't- an offering. Yes, but I forget mm-hmm. that piece. What I loved was the idea that no matter what the offering is, God will readily accept it. I remember when I was a child, my my mom bought me this set of sticks of colored clay. I took all of them and I turned them into a ball that kind of looked like the earth. And I gave it to her. And it's this kind of gross looking ball of clay that a toddler just played with probably smelled kind of weird too but my mom had such a a visceral reaction to it that her childhood had just given her something very meaningful to him and I I feel a lot in my life that the offerings that I give not just to people around me but to God are very insufficient but I love the thought that no matter what it is God will readily take it as a devotion as a sacrifice as as worship good Mm -hmm. idea yeah I love Mm -hmm. that because Sometimes we get caught on the rituals. Have I done the right rituals to demonstrate faith? And in those tender moments, I think as any loving father does, he reminds us that it's not about the rituals. It's about the offering. And he is mindful of our service of him. You know, Charu Das talked about the fact that when he finally went through this sort of metamorphosis, realizing that God cared about him, that God was a person— Then he thought to himself, well, God must have some ideas for my life. He must have some some rules that I should follow. And I remember that he said not to squash me down and ruin my life and put me into bondage. But what my feeling was, yes, God does have rules for us. He has guidelines for our lives not to squash us, but to make us into the person that we are supposed to be to keep us safe from certain... By keeping his commandments, we are free. To free us, to free us from things in the world that would damage us. I found that very interesting because that resonates with me. I feel like the rules and the commandments and the ethics that I've brought into my life are to keep me safe and to build me up and to make my character better and to uh, bring me to a point that God would like to see me at. I love the idea of a killjoy God. I feel like... (laughs) You do? You love the idea of a killjoy God? Well, because... I th- because I think we've all thought it at, at some point We in probably our lives. have. <laughs> um, I feel like inevitably a disciple of deity follows a discipline. And to follow a discipline, it goes back to these inherent truths, these self-evident truths. Why would you follow it unless you felt like you had some sort of gain or some benefit from it? For me, in my 20s, generationally, there's a lot of my friends, and myself included, were adrift. I like the word that he used. We're adrift. We're searching. We're looking for something that will benefit us. We're searching for our self-evident truths. And what was so poignant to me was the challenge that he took up of praying for that 35 minutes in that week helped him gain that truth of of what God is to him and how God wants him to to flourish in his own life. So for me it's it's all about how do you learn God? Will you follow what he want or what they want you to do? You follow what God asks you to do and that's how you gain your truths. That's how you follow this discipline with a resolve that you will gain something from it that will benefit you, that will benefit other people. And when you see the benefit, you know it was a good seed. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Right. When we spend 35 minutes over seven days or whatever amount of time, just a small few minutes a day to touch base with God and invite him into our lives and say, Lord, where do you want me to go today? What can I do for you today? Then over time, it becomes less of a killjoy and more of a transformation of him shaping me into what he sees for me. What I find interesting is that there's a maturation process regarding personal relationship with God, God as a ruler, God as a rule maker, God as a person who cares about us individually, and then I think ultimately there's the question of what is our relationship to him and why does he care about us so much? And if he does, what's my response supposed to be? to this God and the, or this personage. I think it's simply a matter of one day realizing that we have purpose. We are here for a reason. We're not accidental. God has, has created this whole universe, this whole world, so that somebody, me and all of my friends and all of us here in this room, can ultimately Uh, make our way back to him somehow. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Anne, Solomon, Peggy, and Laddie, and especially to Charu Das for generously sharing his time, his stories, and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds tell their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Where do you listen to In Good Faith? We'd love to know. Email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. We had production assistance from Christine Knockleby and Marcus Smith. Our student assistant is Lisey Clegg. I'm your host and producer, Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in good faith.